I think uh, inventing new things to desire. So I, I think for a couple of centuries, that'll be our job is to ask good questions and to invent new things that we want. Welcome to Pensive Series. Kevin Kelly is the co-founder of Wired Magazine, a best-selling author and a leading thinker on technology. After the release of his new book, The Inevitable, I had a chance to talk with him about his life, his journey, and how technology will continue to change our lives. Ever since I listened to Tim Ferriss's podcast, I've been very excited to learn more about Kevin Kelly's work, uh, his work on technology, how he thinks about the future, especially because technology is such a fundamental driver of, of this century and of the future, and he has such a clear understanding of it. And I feel like the more you understand how he thinks, the more you can understand technology and the future. And so I was very curious about how how he's now viewing the world and all these new ways of understanding it. And so I really hope you enjoy this because he's really a fine thinker who understands technology on a deep level. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, a town called Westfield, which was a bedroom suburb for New York City. My dad worked in New York City. Uh, it was a you know middle-class college-bound suburb, and I left it as soon as I could. And then how did, you, uh, how did you think about your future from there? I didn't plan ahead. I had no career uh, ambitions at all. I um, went to one year of college and then dropped out and went to Asia, where I gave myself the assignment of being a photographer, and I worked over the period of the rest of the... Um, the 70s um, in Asia uh, between Turkey and Japan um, I wound up um, eventually working in Iran before uh, it was sort of uh, closed and Americans were thrown out so um, uh, I was I, I was my adult life was was beyond high school was very uh, much formed by my time in Asia is there any like turning point in your life when you look back would really define and shape your character? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if there was a turning point, but there was certainly uh, I, that might have been it. I mean, it might have been my uh, arriving in Taiwan in 1971 or something, and um, uh, I'd never been out of New England before that time. Uh, I'd never eaten Chinese food, held chopsticks, had any contact at all with uh, uh, this other stuff. So I was a, it was a very parochial uh, – we were very parochial at that time in the, in, the, in, the, in the 60s. And so that was probably the – yeah, it was probably one of the most transformative moments in my life was, was a landing in Taiwan. Is there like a particular story or an example that sort of um, exemplifies how you found your purpose in your life? Um, you know, usually it's a process, right? There's all these different things, all these adventures yeah. you had. Um, is, how would you describe sort of that journey of finding your purpose? 
<clears throat> finding my purpose. I, 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 I'm not sure I have found my purpose. Um, there, there was, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still a process. I think we're all still searching. I'm still searching. I, I, I wouldn't say that, that I, there was a moment when I found my purpose, but there was definitely, um, moments when I felt that maybe I had accomplished something. Um, my the, one of the few dreams I had about work was I wanted to work for the whole earth catalog, which was very influential to me in high school. And I, I didn't want to really want to work anywhere else. I didn't want to have any other kind of job. I wanted to only work for that magazine, but I didn't want to work for them kind of just as a, you know, as an intern, what they didn't have, or, you know, kind of a, as a grunt, I wanted to actually edit it. And that knew that was going to be a big step because I had no experience whatsoever. But um, I eventually, through a very roundabout way, I was hired as an editor. And that was really my first job. And um, I remember putting out the first issue by myself. That was a sense of like, yes, I have done something that I wanted to do and I have achieved that. Um, so uh, that was a very big moment for me because it was um, something that I dreamed about for um, at least a decade and more. That's amazing. Um, uh, how did you develop sort of that, that intuition to, to follow your own path and, you know, do all these things yeah. that are quite uncommon, right? And then- yeah, I, I, um, I read um, uh, David Thoreau's, uh, well, Henry David Thoreau's book, um, Walden in, in like ninth grade or something. And I was, that was very, very, very influential to me because something that spoke to me in a, in a way. And this was his idea of living simply in the life and kind of making up your own life and building your own things and kind of marching to your own drum. He called it. And something about that just, clicked with me and I absorbed it and, and internalized it and owned it and that I mean I, I don't know if it changed how I was thinking but it certainly confirmed my own tendencies and I just sort of it gave me permission to kind of maybe go more deliberately in a way that I might have tended to go um, by myself but there was very few role models and here was a role model that was respected by you know, by teachers, by the American culture, and it said, "Yeah, it was, this was okay. This was this was an okay thing to do," which gave me kind of permission. And then the whole Worth catalog came along, which was saying basically the same thing, which was you can invent your life, you can um, uh, uh, give yourself your own job, um, uh, give yourself uh, award yourself your own degree if you want uh, to just make it up. And um, here are some tools to help you make it up. And so that 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 was a second vote in a second vote of confidence in this path. And so I was very by the time I left high school, I was very comfortable with the idea that I could do whatever I wanted. But I also accepted at the fact that I would always have more time than money. That this was not going to be that I was going to be time, time rich and cash poor all my life. And I, and kind of, that was fine with me. And that was the, the, that, that, that's what I assumed. And, and how did you balance, um, 
you know, sort of the serendipity that comes from doing different things and uh, having all these different adventures, but also staying focused on one thing and sort of, you know, staying on one path and, and developing that. I think that was much more just my personality. Even as a kid, I was I could really focus and uh, I was self self driven, self motivated, disciplined, and focused. Even as a kid, so I, I I think I just carried that forward. I don't know why. That was just my my temperament. I think you know I think everybody can get better at it, and maybe I was rewarded for that. So I I, I did. And I think I also probably tried to do that too, um, but I, it, it came pretty easily for me. Yeah, um, yeah. I, mean, I remember when you um, when you were on Tim Ferriss's podcast, and you mentioned your your story, and it, for me, it was inspiring to like um, because you know you were you were so confident in like going your own path and doing all these different things. Um, is there any like philosophy? Like you know, you mentioned uh, Turow. Is there any other philosophy that sort of underpinned that journey? Um, well, I think, uh, when I left, I'd read the horse catalog, which kind of introduced me to this idea of Zen and, and, um, Zen Buddhism. Um, and so I think I was a kind of a very Zen character, um, myself. I mean, just my temperament, um, the kind of, um, uh, kind of taking the world as a question that you, that needs that that your life is going to try to answer and um have it being comfortable with uncertainty even though i was a science geeky kid and i believed in science as a way to to get knowledge but the way of science is actually it's not about certainty it's actually about uncertainty it's it's that you everything is provisional so you you do an experiment and that's what it says and that's the truth but that's the truth until someone can change your mind and they often do and so um, so I think I had a I, I think uh, maybe the kind of a little bit of Zen philosophy also crept in and of course once I got to Asia I started to read the Asian classics and reading Japanese stuff so I think I also fairly quickly took a little bit of our Eastern mindset to a lot of things. And, um, I was comfortable and at ease with that. So I think a, a general, um, the general cosmology, maybe I would say of, of kind of an Eastern viewpoint. Um, so it was something I absorbed, not in a, you know, there wasn't a particular, um, text. Although later on I did read the, the autobiography of Gandhi which was very influential to me and I, uh, but, but he himself was a little bit of a hybrid between East and West. Um, and I don't know if it was philosophy, but he, he, he called his things in a, a radical honesty, radical truth, which, which was, I, I also try to practice, which was, um, being truthful, uh, kind of radically truthful and honest, not, not dogmatically truthful, uh, but you know, just just kind of trying to speak truth even when it was uncomfortable. Yeah, um, was there a point in your twenties when you know maybe things weren't going so well? There was a point of adversity, and then how did you like get out of that? How did you think about this, and what led you sort of out of those um, yeah. moments? Um, 
for better or worse, I haven't had any real uh, periods of adversity. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm unfairly blessed in that way. Um, so I, yeah. Um, and it may be partly my perspective that even when I didn't have much money, I, I saw that as an advantage because I, they gave me a lot of time. And, um, I, so, 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 um, I mean, there were, you know, there were moments when I was lost or sick. Um, I got hepatitis in, uh, in Nepal and I was sick in, in Calcutta. I was laid up for a month in the Salvation Army hostel on my back. Nobody knew I was there. I was, you know, I, I was very, very sick, uh, as in the middle of the worst part of Calcutta. Um, I was sort of delirious. Um, so how did I get through that? Um, I just figured it would pass. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like, I think it goes back to what you said, your, um, you know, state of mind is very calm. Um, uh, is that something you developed or was just naturally uh, sort of, you were born with that, uh, sort of that, that state of mind? I, yeah, I, I think, I think, I think that it was something I was, I'd lucked out in and that I just constitutionally, generally very not anxious, not worried. I don't worry very much. Um, pretty accepting about, well, okay, this is what it is and we'll try to make it better. Um, so I, I, I wish I could say that I kind of developed that, but I, I, my radical honesty has to let you know yeah. that, that in fact, <laughs> I think I was just like that all, always as a kid. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm asking, because for me, it's interesting sort of um, how life is different, you know, when you have sort of a, a good mindset and, you know, it's like nurtured by the right people and in the, yeah. in the right space and you have the good habits and you have a trajectory and you're going somewhere. And then, you know, the opposite when, you know, you're maybe isolated and, you know, you, um, you, you know, you take everything like seriously and, and mm -hmm. things are not going well. And I think sort of how can you manufacture maybe that state of mind? And because, you know, for you, it's so, um, it's, it's so like inbuilt and it's, yeah. it's such a strength. Um, and for other people, maybe they don't have that. And so I, like, that's what I'm trying to see is, is there something to deduce from, from your wisdom or like, because it's so, yeah, like yeah. inbuilt because it's so important, I think, because if you don't have the right state of mind, then, um, then, you know, nothing else is really possible. And, and, you know, some people do it with meditation and exercise and, you know, all these people, that, that, all right, the things right, that people right. are talking about. But I'm just like, maybe there's some more unconventional wisdom that you have. Um, but yeah, you know. it's, it's, you're right. I mean, if you do have that, then you, you have, you have an incredibly powerful platform that makes it easier to stride forward. I mean, I was, I was one of the hippies and I was sort of unusual among hippies because I didn't take any drugs at all. And I used to say, I'm just naturally high. I don't need to take the drugs. I had no interest. It didn't, I mean, I, it, it felt to me that I was as high as they were without taking any drugs. And so I, I had no, no desire to, it just didn't, it didn't appeal to me in any way. I didn't think I had any advantage. Um, I mean, there was a psychedelic aspect, which I did experience later on, but, those are those are fleeting. They 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 don't they don't stay with you. Um, yeah. And so I, I I do think that if there is techniques to um, cultivate that state where you are comfortable, at ease, and um, 
you know, that, that that's definitely gives you an advantage. And I feel like I do have an advantage, but I, I don't have techniques to cultivate it yeah. firsthand because I haven't done it. But, but, but there is one there, much later in life. And, um, I did come across this term, which I just really, really like, which was called pronoia. And, um, pronoia is this, um, you know what paranoia is, is where you believe that the, everyone's conspiring against you. Or pronoia is where you believe everyone's trying to help you. And uh, that's sort of what I came to believe, is is that there's a conspiracy, that the whole universe is conspiring to try and help me. And that you just have to kind of receive these these gifts and be grateful for it. And that's the that's the other thing, is, is being grateful. And... Um, you know, when I pray, when I'm most of all my prayers are just gratitude. That's that's I have really only one prayer, which is I'm in thanks. And I think um, uh, I think when you are grateful, then it makes it very easy to receive these these other gifts from people that are conspiring to help you. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, when you look back at your life, what what are you, what are some of the things you're mo- you're most proud of? Well, I have to say I have three kids and none of them are in jail. I think that's um, something where our, our, our kids are, were, you know, it was it's both a pleasure and something that we're, we're proud of that they are on their own, so to speak. Um, um, we I built s- several houses, uh, one by hand and this one that I'm in, which is, I didn't build myself, but I, we designed and made, and it's just a it's a place that is tailored to us, and um, it has evolved over 25 years to be a place that makes us happy, makes other people happy. Um, it's very practical, and that's like a 25 year project. Um, so, family, shelter, um, I, you know. I've written a number of books, and I think each one of them is like a child. You're, you're. I mean, it's hard to love one more than the other. I've done a lot of of, of bookish projects, and then I'm. I, it's hard for me to pick one that I'm prouder of than the other. The first book was a big thing. The last book was was cool. Made a New York Times bestseller. So I, I, um, my work, I guess, just yeah, just in general, being able to complete things. Um, and you know, starting Wired was an improbable success. I mean, it really was very, very unlikely. And, and the whole time, I thought that it would fail any moment because it had many near-death experiences. I mean, there were many times within half of an inch of failing again for the. And then each issue we put out was we almost didn't make each issue, and so. Um, that feels like a remarkable achievement because it was just so unlikely to happen the whole time. What do you think? Like, kept it going like, in the in those moments when? Well, 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 you know, um, there were several. Uh, Lewis, the Keefe founder, was what he called, and what he, you know, he made no amends. He was a completely unreasonable person. His his demands were unreasonable. He's kind of like a Steve Jobs character, where you know we're we're about to put the thing out, and then he rips up the cover because it, 
we could do better. It's like, this is like insane. You know, we're, we've been up all night and we're going to start again. And yes, you know, it's just like, it has to be, has to be better. And, um, so he was the unreasonable, crazy pushing everybody. That was one thing. The second thing was that, um, uh, we didn't care in a certain sense. We didn't care about, there's a certain, there was a certain sense in which we were the audience and we didn't, we were making what we wanted and we kind of weren't really trying to serve this, um, template uh, the audience because there was no audience there, there it, it was this thing where we were creating things and, and we were creating it for ourselves and that gave us this freedom and drive to complete it was like well um we, we don't care uh people say we shouldn't do this but, but we want to do this and so there was a, a this this i don't know what the what the word is but there was a there was an energy that derived out of the fact that basically um uh, we were doing it for ourselves and trying to please ourselves first and foremost. Even when Lewis ripped up a cover, it was because he was not pleased. It wasn't that the audience, it was just like, no, we can do better than this. And so that, that, that kind of ability of, 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 of um, going along our own path allowed us to kind of skate over all these impossible hurdles which didn't were in retrospect weren't really hurdles they were just imaginary things because because um we skate we, you know this is the typical thing where you didn't know that it was impossible to do this is why a lot of startups accomplish things because all the big companies know that there's no way to do this and the same thing all the media companies know there's no way this can happen but we didn't know that and so we just we we, we find this path through it because we were just not trying to, we weren't solving the same problem they were solving. We were solving a different problem, which was how do we make something that we want to read? And then when it worked out, how did that feel uh, after all these struggles? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say that that was, that was really amazing. And it was even more amazing for me because I had been putting out a magazine that wasn't too different called the Whole Earth Review. Um, and there was a total of, you know, 30,000 people reading it. And it had no advertising, and it was very, it was, it was a very influential thirty thousand, but it was a very small, unknown magazine. And I was talking to about the same kind of things, the same kind of people. And then when I went over to Wired, okay, I continued doing that, and suddenly it's in the middle of the entire country, if not the world. It's the center of the universe. It's a big spotlight on it. Everything we do is amazing, and it's like I've been doing this for twenty years now. Why is what's the difference? And the difference is that. We were at the right time, at the right place. The spotlight was on us, and um, the more attention we got, the more attention we got. And so there was a little bit of a strangeness because I wasn't, I wasn't doing very different things before. It was just now we were on the stage of the of the country, and everything was visible. And so it felt wonderful and great that we could have an audience, but also strange because. I was doing the same thing, you know, and now everybody was watching. They're yeah. saying, yeah, you're saying this is amazing. I'm saying, well, uh, where were you 20 years ago? <laughs> so one thing I really liked in your book uh, that you mentioned was um, in, like, in sort of the, in a super connected world, it's very, um, what, 
where innovation and wealth comes from is to think different, right? And so like, mm -hmm. that's what a lot of people hear. And uh, what does that mean for you, think different? Like, um, how do you think different? Well, one thing, and I have said this elsewhere, but I, I traveled to keep my mind flexible and it didn't enable me to think different. And so the, the thinking different is, um, well, one trick, I, have, I, have, I call them tricks. Their exercises or their 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 modes, but the the one trick I did and I have done in several books is that I try to look at the world through the eyes of technology rather than through humans. Okay, so so it's kind of like what Richard Dawkins did with his very famous book, The Selfish Gene. He was imagining the world through the eyes of genes rather than through the eyes of the organisms. Basically, an organism is just a way to replicate the genes. But if you view the world from the eyes of genes, the gene viewpoint, you see the world differently. You think differently. You can have all these fantastic ideas. And so one of the things I do is try to imagine the world through the eyes of technology itself as if it had a perspective. And that's what, techno what technology wants. The, the other thing is, is I picked up from um, uh, Marvin Minsky, which is a very similar kind of trick, which he imagines, he looks at the world as if he was an alien from Mars. And, and the, he was not a human, that, 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 that he was just a visitor. So, so that, that visitor viewpoint, that tourist viewpoint, if you can enable that even in your own backyard, it's really, really very powerful. And the third idea, again, it's also very similar, which is um, this kind of um, uh, what if... Um, which is the challenge of the assumptions. Okay, what if everything we what if everything we know or assume is true is not true? What if every what if what if what everybody knows quotes in scare quotes what everybody knows is actually untrue? And then so so by saying well what if you know what if Moore's law stopped? What if um, uh, what if technology started getting uh, more and more expensive instead of cheaper and cheaper? What if um, and, and so there's kind of like an exercise scenario where you play, it's, it's a type of play, where you play with different perspectives that you generate, and most of them are stupid and don't yield very much, and they're kind of dumb and they fail, but occasionally there's, they reveal something very profound, and so uh, the short answer may be that, that I play, it's, it's, it's I play with looking at things differently. Looking at them differently is not that hard. You can you become a habit, a, a discipline. Um, and but, but sometimes you actually need to do it several steps down. It's the second order view that is often important. There was a very famous uh, science fiction author, Arthur C. Clarke, who uh, used to talk about the second order effects. He said it's very easy to imagine a car, a, car, a horse carriage becoming an automobile. The, take away the horses, you have a motor. He said that was, you know, so imagining automobiles was not difficult. He said that the, 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 the magic was imagining traffic jams and drive-in movie theaters, the second order effects. And so when you kind of think differently, it's, it's, it's the, the real power comes if you can go to the second, the second level. From your perspective today, um, what are some underappreciated second-order effects of, of the internet and you know technology in general? Yeah, th that's exactly the right question to ask because it's sort of like yeah, you can imagine the internet, but could you imagine Wikipedia or the, or Twitter? Um, 
those were harder to kind of see. And so when we think about the things coming up, like artificial intelligence and virtual reality, what are some of those second order effects that would come out? And um, um, I, I think, uh, you know, we can make a list of them and you might think about, well, you know, again, what happens if AI is ubiquitous, then you would have, um, you certainly could have AIs working for AIs. You could have, um, uh, um, you know, uh, just as we have kind of an arms race right now with uh, virus makers and virus hunters, and there's, uh, maybe there's kind of like uh, arms races with AI between the AIs where um, you just have to buy these things just to keep the other AIs on par. I mean, um, I'm just rambling, trying to think out loud. Yeah. Being, so, no. so, so, or maybe what's so, the method? You know, because uh, what's more important even is like how how you sort of think about these things. How do you analyze those things, and how do you get to those answers? And then people can like you know figure that out themselves exactly right right so, so so it's an exercise it's just a habit it's just something you kind of it's uh do and and then by the way I, I i think because of the rate of change in technology that that we every it's not just just futurists who should be doing this this is something that uh, ordinary people have to get better at because we um to be permanent newbies, constantly learning new things, we have to kind of keep our minds flexible, basically, and and be ready to embrace these impossible new ideas as they come along. Um, you know, Wikipedia seemed impossible, and some people could kind of understand quicker than others that this was uh, this was a huge new resource, and and those that really found it simply uh, uh, unreasonable, couldn't trust it. And uh, I think um, what we want to do is to keep rehearsing these possibilities so that when they do appear, we're ready to accept them, uh, their benefits faster. Yeah. Uh, in your book, you often mention uh, sort of things in the past you considered unrealistic and then they turned out to be true and they yeah. happened. Um, right. Is there anything today that you, you maybe you know maybe like even you with all this knowledge and expertise uh, that you will you know oh this this seems like not realistic um, but like you know it may may actually happen. Well, when I was first hearing about the blockchain, which is behind Bitcoin, um, and people were talking about making autonomous organizations, um, that seemed like a little bit of a stretch even to me. But are you know they have made one already the distributed uh, auton autonomous organization DAO, and um, it's been hacked. But um, it is it seems like that's uh, that's going to happen. That there's going to be um, a blockchain underpinning where you have these um, institutions that are primarily software that. Um, have agency and make decisions and um, execute uh, actions. And the whole thing is not even AI. It's, it was partly AI, but it's, it's just a very complex set of rules that are all legally binding. And so um, that, 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 when I first heard it, I was thinking that sounds pretty science fiction-y. 
but um, they may still happen. Yeah. Um, so if we if you look at technology, you know, a lot of people focus on the innovation part, but then you could you could make that argument that you know. Um, because so many people are working on this part, the innovation part is really solved. We're on a trajectory where you know everything is sort of um, going there. But the thing is, how do we like bring the innovation into society, right? And so at the intersection of governance and, and technology, there's a lot of problems. Uh, one example is autonomous vehicles. The technology is there, but like you know, putting it into society, that's that's a challenge. Um, how would you think about you know, th those problems sort of arriving at that at that intersection? Uh, and how should we deal with those problems? And the problems, uh, uh, I mean, the problems of implementing all these things? Yeah, implement, like making sure that, um, you know, we implement them into society and, you know, all the different stakeholders can work together and, you know, there's going to be a lot yeah, of friction. Yeah. Because people talk about disruption, uh, you know, but they only look at disruption of the, the positive side. And disruption yeah. is also a negative word and, uh, you know, has all these, like... Well, I mean, what what you were just describing is actually what politics and government is. That's it's it's a basically it's a mechanism for a large group of people to resolve disagreement and uh, compromise, uh, and to make that uh, work on an ongoing basis. And that's sort of what that's what politics and government is. Uh, in, in theory, um, you know, it, 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 I, I think um, it's not working very well right now. But 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 that's a second point. The the first point is that, that that's what that's what that mechanism is. It's 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 politics and government just just to negotiate all these things. So you have a new you have a you know have an Uber come along and and some people are, you know the, the old uh, taxi cab unions or whatever are all threatened and they are you know they want their interests protected and you have other people who are concerned about this and they want this and so that it has to be negotiated and um that negotiation that process is politics and government yeah but so if if we look at for example you know um the evolution of politics um you know these days um there isn't that much evolution and innovation happening in the realm of politics. Uh, if, you, if you go back to the American Revolution, in order to like participate, that you know people had to contribute uh, pieces and, yeah. and 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 intellectual thought. And right. um, you know at that time, you know there was a new piece of land, and it was sort of like it was separate from the world. And p the founding fathers were able to reimagine the world and then to apply that and inspire sort of a new way of how the world could be structured. And you sure, know, sure. you see that today, you know, with these with seed setting institute and people building cities, and um, and you can clearly see that in you know the younger generations uh, on the networks and in the decentralization, they're building new things and they're building alternative ways of how the world works. But where do you see anything where this could like get into like a new way of uh, you know of, of structuring society and um, you know the nation state system is very old and do you see like you know yeah. the, you mentioned the blockchain and where is it really? Do we have to go to a new planet like you know Elon Musk and Mars, or yeah. where do you see the opportunities to really have a tabula rasa, how John Locke used to say, and really build things from scratch and reimagine things? And you mentioned that earlier how important it is to look at things from like you know the child's perspective or like beginner's mind, and you know that's it's very difficult to do, right? So how do yeah. you think about yeah. those things, which are very important, I think? Yeah, I think there are two opportunities to to kind of 
start fresh. One of them is in an idea that the economist Paul Romer has been working on for a couple of years, which he called charter cities, meaning that you uh, forget about the nation state, but you can kind of make new cities, particularly in the developing world. They're sort of like the Hong Kong, where they're duty-free, trade-free, much more liberal. You can kind of invent a whole new set of, of laws and um, they operate a little bit kind of semi-autonomous within a country. And they are competing against each other in some ways because you're, you're inviting immigrants and, and money, entrepreneurs, funding to come in there and to develop something. And so you have, you have many different types with different bylaws uh, that would be um, you know, competing for and, and would want to grow into these big megacities. And I think megacities are the unit, uh, the new unit. And so that's one way to do it, where you are basically carve out a little, uh, a little zone, and uh, you try stuff there. The second, the second place I think we're going to maybe have a second chance is in uh, world government. Is in a, is in um, trying to make an actually democratic, uh, sustainable, uh, effective world government at the planetary scale because we have a lot of problems like like uh, global climate change refugees um and other issues that are just planetary problems that have to have a planetary solution and so that's that's completely wide open about how that is how that would be done how that would work and that is an, another chance to invent something new um much more modern and um, well, in this case, never before done. So uh, I think both of those charter cities, and one could imagine actually a world government that was basically based around cities rather than states. So, um, uh, so, so yeah, I th that's the, those are the directions I think you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, so also during the American Revolution, there was this guy called Thomas Paine who wrote Common Sense, and you know, in, in a sort of in the simple words, he wrote this pamphlet that catalyzed people's thinking. Uh, you know, towards independence against the British crown. Um, you mentioned in the book also how we, we need to have new modes of thinking. How, how do you think, can we like, you know, move people's thinking forward that they understand sort of these new implications and sort of the, the new world that we're stepping into in so many ways. And it's, there's a lot of uncertainty and we don't know a lot of things, but there's also a lot of things that we can see where sort of the world is going to in, in some ways. And how can you like, you know, educate people and like, catalyze their thinking so they can embrace these things more and they're not so fearful of this this new yeah. world yeah there, and there is a definitely a generational aspect to this um yeah i think what you're suggesting is we need a common sense for this century and um i suspect we do but i also suspect that it should be written by a 20 year old and not a 65 year old <laughs> and so um what do you think I, would have to go into the book well, of course, it wouldn't, wouldn't be a book. It'd probably be a YouTube clip. Um, I think, uh, basically, it, it would have to be an articulation of sort of what people already know. I don't think you can kind of tell them something they don't know. That's not going to work. You, you have to kind of just sort of confirm or articulate, speak out. And kind of the way Trump speaks out. He represents the, the, the dying generation. He, he represents the old generation. He says the things that they believe. Um, he's not telling them something that they don't believe. He's not trying to change their mind. He's just 
telling them their mind. And I think that this is the same thing. You need to kind of tell people of this generation what what they already know. You have to just uh, give it words. And um, uh, I think that would be very effective. I think it would be very powerful. And uh, again, I think it would would not work if somebody old did it. I think it has to be some young, brilliant upstart to do it. Yeah. Um, so when you look to the future, what are you most excited about? Um, because you're sort of in a unique perspective where you have such expertise on technology that unlike a few other people, and how do you see sort of, the, the, you know, what, what are you really excited about? Well, there's a c- couple things, uh, maybe two things that I'm most excited about. Um, and I, I indicate one of them in, in the book, The Inevitable, and let me just begin with that one and that one is, is basically artificial intelligence I uh, I really feel is going to be um, hu- so huge it's it probably more transformative to our society than either printing or the industrial revolution was I mean it, it's 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 at the monumental um it's a monumental level. So, so, and and that's and that's going to take a hundred years. It's not something that will happen in a year. It's it, it'll just keep going and going and going, and um, uh, it may you know it may be it may take longer than we thought to to do it, but but it's already beginning. And, and I think if you if you just try to multiply what's happened in the last couple of years by a hundred, it's just phenomenal. The way in which that is. You know, the way that our lives here now have been transformed by artificial power, which is harnessing cheap fossil fuel, electricity, steam power, and the way that that moved us from an agricultural mode where all everything done was done with animal power, whether our own animal or, I mean, our own bodies or or hired animals. That could, that was just limiting with the muscle power of, of a animal compared to what we can do now with artificial power, building skyscrapers, building factories, driving a car down the road with 250 horsepower in it. Um, that all the prosperity that we have today is really coming from that. And, and that's just the first step. And then we're going to add all this um, artificial mind intelligence and smartness to it. Take those 250 horses, add 250 minds, which is a robocar. It's just, uh, going to transform everything in our lives over the next hundred years and so um we're now at the beginning of that and that's very exciting because we get to shape it we get to steer it we get to set it in motion in the right directions we get to harness all the easy pickings and we're alive at that moment and so um that's very exciting the second thing is just the continuation of of what we've been doing with the communications technology, which is making tools that allow us to collaborate at larger and larger scales in more and more dimensions, at different speeds, in different varieties. So, so, so um, you know, uh, right now we have you know, 1.5 billion people all together on, in one platform sharing. They're sharing trivial things, you know, but that's just the beginning. Imagine we have five billion people um, collaborating on something important. What you know, uh, it, it's it's 
we're we're moving in this continuing to move in this direction of increasing the way we can coordinate and cooperate and that's been the basis of, of human evolution from the beginning when we cooperated in hunting and and we're just going to keep elevating and deepening the ways in which we can coordinate and cooperate and collaborate in, in a million ways uh, to do real things. And um, that is so exciting. Um, you wrote this amazing piece uh, for Wired um, a while ago on uh, VR and AR and it really like illustrated um, sort of that world uh, very well. Um, I'd be curious to understand how you look at sort of the next evolution of that, uh, you know, something like the matrix, like something that's fully immersive and sort of where do you see the obstacles of getting there, something that's as fully immersive as, you know, possibly the matrix uh, from the movie. And then what do you think could be the social benefits and, and what are also the costs attached to that? Yeah, there, the, the thing about as we head into these virtual worlds is we want to keep it that there's a plural, that there's many varieties, um, we have a couple, we're starting off with kind of two or three varieties. Mixed reality where you, which is what Magic Leap is working on, the company I reported, where you have the clear goggles, clear glasses, and you superimpose the virtual onto the real world, or whether it's inside your house or in your office, or maybe even if you're walking down the street. And then there's the kind of closed version where you are completely transported to a different place. And there's nothing of the uh, what we call the real world left. It's all um, synthetic, and um, and there will probably be other varieties as as well, um, and maybe you know shades of things in between. So uh, there's the, the 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 version that you were talking about of this closed, completely alternative very realistic seeming is, is it will be a never ending um uh never ending achievement in the sense of it's like ai ai is mostly defined as that which we can't do what we haven't been able to do yet so um it's 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 constantly move the goal posts are, the goals are constantly moving because whenever we achieve something in ai we we, we redefine it as not ai it's well it's machine learning it's 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 something else. If if we can do it, then it's not AI. And VR is somewhat the same. We we have a very strong notion of what this alternative world looks, and there it will always be failing in some capacity. I don't. Th I, I think the the question of will we be able to tell the difference, and the answer will be yes if it's important to you. It's like photography right now. Can you tell if a photograph has been photoshopped? And the answer is, if it was really important, you can tell. You can do forensics. You can do. You you could tell. You could look at the file. There there are ways that you will always be able to tell if it was faked. But it's a very expensive thing to do, and for most people, it's, they don't care. So, uh, for most people, well, I don't care if it's faked or not. It's not important. There are other cases when it is important, and therefore you could tell if you wanted to. Um, and so uh, I think the same thing would be about VR, which is some lots of times you won't be able to tell the difference, but you don't care. Other times 
you may want to know, and you'll there'll always be some way to tell if it's important to you. Yeah. Um, so alluding to AI again, how would you like leverage um, you you know your uniqueness and your role in the world um, and working with the machines? Um, yeah. And not competing against like you know in some ways in a quantitative sense it's going to be very difficult to compete with machines. But um, yeah, you know, if you look right. at chess. Uh, where the best players now they they collaborate with uh, with, with AI. Um, right. How would you think about sort of re maintaining like a qualitative component that you can leverage, but also like you know not not leaving the quantitative side behind? Yeah, I mean, the way I would use AI is is if I want an answer to something, I'll ask a machine, and I think answers, facts, maybe even explanations become something that I would depend on my AI for. I would like to ask questions and have it give me answers. I think um, where my strength would be is in asking questions. And I think that's generally where, where our culture will move to is that being able to ask a really good question becomes more important than trying to make the answers. Because the answers are, if they're known, if the answers are, are, are just being regurgitated. Uh, giving answers to things that haven't been answered um, I think AIs can help us do that. They'll be able to maybe think more logically than we can. Maybe they can look at a broader ra uh, range of evidence. And so they may be partners in us in trying to answer things that don't have answers yet. But the way you, you answer things is actually you keep asking better questions. And so um, I imagine myself as the question side and the AIs as the answer side. And that would make a really good team where you have someone asking good questions and the thing giving good answers. Uh, that would seem to me, to, uh, that's the relationship I'm looking forward to. So in your, in your new book, The Inevitable, um, you have all these different forces and your book is structured that way, which makes it really interesting to dive into all these different forces. Um, but if you were to give your reader um, sort of an, an underlying theme of the message of the book that you want the reader to take away and also maybe for people who uh, are still going to read the book what what's what would be that message I'm trying to in the in the inevitable I'm trying to give an outline of where technology particularly digital technology would take us in the next 20 or 30 years and it's a broad outline of the landscape kind of the general contours of where we are not the particulars not the specifics it's sort of like the way um, uh, and, and these contours, I would say, are inevitable. That they're going to come whether we choose them or not. But the particulars, the specifics, are not inevitable. They're not predictable. And we have a lot of control over those. And they make a huge difference to us. <coughs> Excuse me. So what um, I would like people to do is to embrace and accept the inevitability of the large firms, that there's going to be more AI in our lives that they will be ubiquitous virtual realities, that there's going to be total tracking and surveillance, that we're moving from owning things to accessing, that we're going to, uh, there's so much stuff that we have to have filters in front of all of them to, in order to, for us to even use them. There's all these things that I want us to accept so that we can steer the particulars, so that we, we, because we can only steer things by using them, by engaging with them. And so if, we, if you try to prohibit them or block them, turn them away, turn them off, turn them down, um, you don't get to steer it. And so uh, I want us to embrace, accept 
them in the large form so that by using engaging we can actually tweak the specifics so that we minimize their harm and maximize their benefits. Okay, great. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, they, they, they use technology to amplify, amplify their lives already in many ways. Um, what do you think are some ways where people don't use technology that could actually leverage their lives and, and make their lives better and empower them in, in, in ways that they don't, don't see that, uh, how they can use it yet? kind of goes a little bit back to um, the second thing I was excited about, about the collaboration, the tools of collaboration. It took me a long time myself to learn um, that I could leverage my own ideas, my own uh, influence in the world, maybe even my own happiness by collaborating with other people. And I think... Um, at one time that was difficult because you had to collaborate with people who live near you and they may not have shared your mindset at all. But the beauty of what we've invented is, is that um, out of 8 billion people, it's a very high likelihood that you'll be able to find a couple hundred people who think just like you do, no matter what it is. And they may not be the same hundred for each idea, but, but you can find collaborators and then you can collaborate them with this, with the, with these tools and um, so, so I would say to, to to the people is, no matter what your interest, no matter how obscure, how weird you think it is, how unlikely, there is probably people in the world who share that with you, and it would be really cool and and powerful if you collaborate with them in some way. Um, yeah, this is this is awesome. Um, a more hypothetical question: If you could have dinner with, um, with let's say, an, an AI robot in the future, and you can decide when, um, what kind of like conversation would you imagine you want to have, and what kind of questions would you want to ask? Um, For with an AI? Yeah, like um, yeah, like a, hu a human, an AI that looks like a human, and you know, it's it's like a it's like a conversation that would be, you know. Yeah, I I think I I, I write in the book the inevitable how the thing about ais is that they aren't going to think like humans they aren't going to think for like humans for many reasons including the reason that we aren't going to make them like that they're more valuable to make to think differently than us and so i think a conversation with a really advanced ai will be like having a conversation with an alien from another planet and so that you should not expect it to be empathetic but it should be more like you know like you're interviewing an alien which is like they're going to keep surprising you with things that and they won't understand some of the obvious things and they'll uh have profound insights and something other so um so that's what i'm imagining it's like it's like you're going to interview et or something <laughs> um it'll be more like that they'll be frustrating at times uh and then remarkable other times yeah. So um, one thing I also wanted to ask you is, um, you know, you all, you at the beginning you write how we're all becoming and, you know, sort of the question of what are humans good for? Like, it's a quest that would like keep answering over the next decades. Um, like, if you had to, att to attempt to, to answer that question, what are humans good for? And I understand it's a very general question. Like, mm -hmm. how would you, 
think about um, answering that. And um, you know, your book is obviously right, important, right. But well, well, humans are good for are, are asking questions, and um, I think uh, inventing new things to desire. So I, I think f for a couple of centuries that'll be our job is to ask good questions and to invent new things that we want. Thank you for listening and see you next time.